and welcome to Anam Radio. This week we talk to cellist Howard Penny, not only one of Australia's best known and best loved cellists, but also a long-standing member of the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, who played many, many times under conductors including Claudio Abado, Nicholas Harnoncourt, Michael Tilson Thomas and others. Howard, when did you actually join Chamber Orchestra of Europe? It's a bit of a process to get into the orchestra actually because it is a unique setup. It was the first of its kind. It was founded by Abado from a group of players who had reached the age limit of the then European Community Youth Orchestra and they wanted to continue playing together and there was a happy kind of uh, constellation of people being in the right place at the right time. So there was the orchestra in Salzburg, Claudio in Salzburg and then a high-flying businessman who was on his honeymoon who is still the orchestra's chairman. So the three got together their leading players, who included Dougie Boyd, who's a regular guest to Australia now, of course, as well, conducting, thought, OK, let's give it a shot. Let's invent something that has never has never been. There's never been an orchestra uh, like that. Fast-forwarding, there are several operations that, like Mahler Chamber Orchestra, Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie, and the Mozart Orchestra Bologna and, and things like that, that have adopted the model, but we were actually the trailblazers for a good 10 years. What was the manifesto or the raison d'etre, if you like, of of this orchestra. I mean, it was the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, so that gives us a clue, but what apart from that? That's a very good point because we wanted to have the biggest range of repertoire available. So it's a very large chamber orchestra or a very small symphony orchestra, depending on what repertoire we're doing at a given time. The idea was to have as permanent members a string section of 12, 10, 6, 5, 3, and then double winds and trumpets and uh, trombones and timpani. A good, small, romantic orchestra. And the manifesto was that it was absolutely player-run orchestra, and still to the day, every major decision is made by a quorum of the of the players. We have a players' committee, which I was um, part of for many years, working out what the future could be. We were writing the script as we went along. So it was a pretty exciting thing to be part of, and through Claudio's, uh, well, first of all, working with him, obviously, but then through his connections, we basically worked with the very best, the very best conductors, very best soloists in the very best halls. So we were, we were kind of spoiled musically from the beginning. But then trying to work out longevity of the orchestra, we are all kind of in our late 20s when we started, and then, you know, people have other commitments. People mightn't like the touring or be able to cope with the touring lifestyle, or they will have families, or they'll have offers of other jobs. So we had a choice and it was a crossroads. Do we try to keep the players that we have or do we have a fast natural evolve if you like? Our ethos has been to keep players to the extent that right up into the 2000s we paid for partners to come on tours, had a nanny on tour if there were kids involved, all that kind of thing. It was to keep the core membership and it's the hardest orchestra in the world to leave. There are still a good half of uh, the original membership I think there and it's, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary. So, it sounds yeah. a bit like a big family the way you describe it. Totally, absolutely. So it started as a young touring orchestra yep. and evolved into a, a slightly older <laughs> orchestra but it's still essentially a touring orchestra, is oh, that correct? absolutely. There is no bass and we're unique in that sense and that makes it very tricky to organise and it also makes it frankly very expensive to run as well. The office is in London and thanks to Brexit, we'll be moving to Germany as of next year. Boy, I bet those voters didn't take that into account. <laughs> yes, well, no, and an operation like ours, is, uh, of course, has been hit very hard with all of that. 
Funnily enough, like drawing connections in my life, having been part of the Chamber Orchestra of Europe story and literally writing the script as we went along, um, but having the feeling that it was potentially something actually important and amazing. The very first day I walked into Anam, I felt the same thing and I, I felt it's enormous potential and I really was determined and, and very lucky then to be part of. This is something we're still doing, we're still writing the story as we go. There is nothing like Anam in the world and I truly believe that we have established something that is genuinely important and it felt a very logical next step for me to be here. The uh, program that you put together mm. for our concert last week was, I think, almost a typical COE program in many ways. You started with Schumann's Manfred Overture. Manfred's mm -hmm. a very interesting work, I think, because we never get to hear the rest of it. The Overture is quite well known. It's based on Lord Byron's dramatic poem. Now, Byron is pretty much your quintessential romantic mm. poet, and Robert Schumann is, I think, your essential romantic composer. Mm. But romantic is a term that we use fairly loosely. If we get to the essentials of it, what does it mean for you? That's a wonderful question and something that I wanted to explore with the musicians before we got into the project because I think especially an unconducted project, we have the opportunity to go really deeply that each individual musician can experience and learn tools for their future, well, thinking about music basically. So one of the talks I gave before the project was about romanticism. It's this thing we think we know what it is, but what is it actually? And exactly as you say, how does that manifest itself in music and especially someone like Schumann and especially in something like Manfred? Romanticism itself is, I think, the three eyes. So the, it's about the individual, it's about inspiration, and it's about intensity. At this time, so late 18th, early 19th century, the character of the composer becomes an important element and there's a time when there were many biographies and memoirs and letters published and people were really keen to know the personal details about composers who were very keen to share them. And uh, of course the uh, ultimate accessory was to uh, die young after a brilliant and hugely promising career and Schubert, Mendelssohn and Chopin obliged uh, there for instance. But it was also the first time that composers were consciously composing for the future rather than just for next Wednesday. And this led to many, many more details in the score. And it was, it's uncovering the musical language behind the notation that was something that I was very keen to explore with our musicians as well. Because notation is always going to be a sketch, it's always going to be limited. And contextualising that and exploring the individual DNA of each composer's language is something that gets me out of bed in the morning. And I hoped to get the musicians excited about as well. And especially a work as frankly weird as Manfred, in a sense it's unique. Schumann was trying to establish a new form. He thought of music as the higher form of poetry, in other words, beyond poetry. And in writing Manfred, he wanted to combine the two arts in what he called a dramatic poem with music. And uh, I have actually played the whole music once. I was, I was lucky enough to do that. It involves an organ for the, for the last thing, so it's, it's a fairly complicated thing to put on for about 35 minutes of music. So I was very lucky to do that, and the other music is amazing, but all the madness and intensity and volatility is encapsulated already in the overture. And, you know, Schumann just gets a bad rap, basically. I mean, orchestral musicians normally hate playing it, usually because it's played pretty badly, if I'm allowed to say, or pretty insensitively. What, what are all those orchestras and conductors getting wrong? Well, they're in good company, in a sense, because both Mahler and Schoenberg reorchestrated several of Schumann's works. It was obviously done with much love and wanting people to get excited about the music. 
There is nothing wrong with Schumann's orchestration. It is unbelievably demanding. It's demanding to work out what the textures are. Across the score, he invents new instruments, so he has combinations of new instruments across the orchestra that are then making this new sonority for a particular line, for example. The textures can become very thick unless one's attuned to understanding what certain figures and certain traditions of notation actually mean practically for instruments. It's demanding because the technical demands are huge for every single instrument. The other thing is it demands an enormous flexibility flexibility and tempo. It's not a set and forget. There is no click track ever. Well, that's yeah. evident right at the start of ah, this overture yes. because he keeps changing tempo yeah. almost every second bar, doesn't he? It's Correct. But I want to go back to what you were saying about notation and and how that helps you understand the music. Does that mean you go back to the actual manuscript if you can? Absolutely, always, if, if you can. Some composers' manuscripts are uh, easier to read than others. I mean, someone like Mozart or Ravel or Bach, obviously, is just unbelievably clean. Someone like Beethoven is next to impossible to decipher. That's why there are you know, experts to do that. Schumann is mixed. I think the manuscript, of course, tells you because it, it just feels different. Someone who is hearing the music as they write it. I remember I saw the manuscript of Schubert's E-flat piano trio, the second movement of that, when he's doing one of these big builds to an enormous chord. And as he's writing it, he is, of course, hearing this music. And he goes through the page with that accent. Literally, the pen has gone through the page because it's not an editorial thing that is, you know, four millimetres long. It's life and death. And so that's why manuscripts can actually be incredibly exciting. The other thing you talked about was Schumann inventing these very unusual combinations. Can, can you give us an example of that that people could listen out for? At the very beginning, for example, the um, what is an oboe line is actually supported or complemented by second violins, so that immediately gives a different timbre to that line. The harmonic tension in the bassoons is matched by the violas, for example. So it's not a matter of each of those groups just playing their thing. You need to be attuned across to the orchestra to this new sonority that you're making. It's a bit like an organ register. There's a very interesting passage towards the end with the trumpets, I remember, which can you talk about that? That's a very interesting effect. <laughs> and this is one of the signature instrumentation characteristics of this piece. Schumann continues a long tradition of using low trumpets and timpani to suggest what is threatening or what is ominous. I mean, this goes back certainly to Haydn. You think of the Palken Messe, one of the masses, or to Beethoven, for example, in the Missus Solemnis in the Donna Nobis Patsem, which should be peaceful. He has a war scene, but it's always low trumpets and timpani are bleak and mean and ominous and suggesting the threat of war that was, I don't know, a historical fact at that time. And I think we need to point out in the case of Manfred mm. and Byron's character that he created, this is a character who's totally alone, who's cut himself off really from religion, from mm. society. He's carrying the guilt of some sin which he doesn't want to name. We suspect what it is. And he's wandering the alpine crags looking for oblivion. Yeah. And I think Schumann really gets that in the music, doesn't he? Absolutely. And apart from the instrumentation, the harmony, it's officially written in E-flat major and we actually never get E-flat major. We end in E-flat minor, finally, but the beginning, it's everywhere. The harmonies literally slip between your fingers the entire time. You almost never arrive. And uh, that matches actually one of the lines from the poem where all that is solid melts into air. And that's a perfect way to describe the harmonies that Schumann has set. 
Absolutely. Well, look, let's move on to the, the big piece on the program. Well, big in the sense of the longest piece on the program, which was Antonin Dvorak's Eighth Symphony. This is very different in temperament from the Manfred Overture. This is the symphony he wrote at his beautiful country estate, north of Prague in Visica. I think it's the only symphony he wrote at his country home because the next symphony was uh, the New World Symphony relating to America. Talk to me about this symphony. To me, it very much reflects his time in the country and his love of his country home, his family, his village, his culture. How do you feel about this yeah, symphony? I couldn't agree more. It's Dvorak pure and Dvorak's Czechness pure as well. Dvorak does nature really, really well. In so many of his works, there's the feeling of the forest or the woods not being a threatening place, as for example, in Mendelssohn it can be, or in other romantic composers, but as a, as a place of finding your roots, and there's a warmth, and the, the very opening of the symphony, as far as I'm concerned, is a hymn to nature. You have the tune in the cellos, bassoons and clarinets, but the underlying colour, which gives it solemnity, are the three trombones, and that gives a kind of reverential air to it, and it's a genuine, heartfelt song of praise to nature, I think, and that melts, of course, and then enter stage left, we have our bird, the flute. And this is one of the things that I was also encouraging our musicians to embrace, is that a tempo that a composer writes at the beginning of the piece needn't necessarily apply to the beginning, and it certainly doesn't apply for a long stretch. So the prayer obviously has its places where you breathe, and I deliberately let that breathe, or certainly more than the click track would. And then the melting, the shimmering, because the last chord of the trombones dissipates into a timpani roll. He uses timpani for colour a lot. And then that melts into a violin tremolo. So there's this kind of magic air. It's metrically notated, but if it's played absolutely metrically, it could, for me it completely misses the point. You're describing it almost like a painting, or a watercolour. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. They are musical brush strokes. And then there is no structural rhythm in the orchestra while the flute is playing. That, to me, says, and this is an old Baroque rule, when the bass line stops, the top line is free. I mean, it's, it's fairly logical, but hey, let's do it. I don't know of any bird that actually sings in 4-4 time. I've never met one. And so I was encouraging Rachel to absolutely play the bird. And then the orchestra agrees with what the bird is saying, and then the village gathers to join together in a beautiful chorus. Now you are leading, of course, from the first cello desk. It's a great symphony for the cellos. Can you just talk a bit about the cello uh, writing in this symphony? It is a true gift. We are often doubled, and that's, again, creating these new sonorities. The beginning is the violas as well, sorry. Excuse me, violas, uh, bassoons and, and, and clarinets. And again, it's about these, these new sonorities. Dvorak himself was a viola player. A very, very good one, and something I'm sure we'll touch on are the dance elements then in the symphony. He was a member of a dance orchestra for many, many years. But he had great sympathy for lower strings and wrote one of the greatest cello concertos that has ever been written, obviously. So, yes, there are some fantastic moments. But what also interested me were his tempo instructions, because one is used to hearing these beautiful melodies in the beginning of the last movement, for example, enjoyed and celebrated by large cello sections having a great time. There is another element the, the, the tempo markings are actually much faster than one normally hears. And to me, it's always about the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. So rather than just having a grand old cello time, for me, the opening is the rhythm of the speech of the prayer, for example. And then the opening of the um, last movement is not heavy and boots and pomposity. It's unbelievably genial. 
It really is pleasant. It's confident, it's joyous, it's pleasant, though. And so I try to get as close to his tempo as possible. So we've been enjoying the cello-ness of things, but hopefully in the uh, original context. Now, you talked about the dance element, which is very strong in this symphony. The third movement is a waltz, but it's not the kind of waltz you would dance to at a ballroom. Talk a bit about that. He uses various dance forms as composers then did as a vehicle and as a it's a bit like a poet writing a sonnet you know there are kind of strict rules for a sonnet not so strict for a waltz I suppose but he's using the lilt and the directionality and the flow of a waltz and channeling and the waltz of course is central to the whole then empire Austro-Hungarian including Bohemia and Poland and bits of Italy and goodness knows what. And the waltz, having evolved from the Lendler and country dancers, was a very important form of expression in many guises, as you say. So here we have an incredibly nostalgic waltz. I don't think it'd be a particular popular one to dance in the ball season, but it has the connotations of place and has the connotations of movement and humanity and dance. And then on top of that, it has this wonderful layer of, I'd say, nostalgia. I want to talk just a little bit about the second movement, which I find very mysterious. Mm -hmm. The second movement of this symphony, mm. the, the slow movement. Yes. There's a very haunting passage. There's another bird call. This time it's a slightly sadder bird call than mm -hmm. the one in the first movement, yep. answered by some clarinets. Mm -hmm. And these clarinets always remind me of the slow movement in Mahler's first symphony. And I wonder, is that drawing too long a bow? Is that a bohemian sound? Is there a Jewish connection there, do you think? Good point. Actually, with the harmonies, I hadn't actually made that connection myself, but I think you're, you're absolutely on the money. The harmonies are definitely Jewish or Eastern inflected. There are other bits that are almost Ottoman in the last moment, for example. So he's celebrating the Easternness of that bit of the empire, I suppose, as well. And those two contrasting lines that you're talking about, it's almost like the music box element of the flutes which suggests a certain optimism. And then there is the clarinets. I feel this is a type of dumka, the second movement, which you know, can take various forms, but a dumki being the kind of epic ballads about national triumphs and disasters and very, very deeply felt and fairly portentous, I suppose. And so the, the clarinets embody that for me. And then the flutes have the optimism. But of course, then the roles are flipped and the optimistic suddenly becomes dramatic and almost cruel. Very clever juxtaposition there. But I believe it's a dumka. One other thing, there is a polka. And the polka is the central Czech dance. And there are so many different types of polka. Smetna used it explicitly as an, a statement of nationalism and national pride. And I believe Tvorshak was doing it as well. It's hidden in the sense because it comes as a kind of trio within the Dumka. But it is very much a classic Czech polka. And in the context of Germanization that had been the characteristic of the empire and, until that point, this was the beginnings of a kind of nationalist movement, I suppose. Incorporating elements like that would not have been lost. I think we have to point out that back in Dvorak's time, the educated Czech classes often did not speak Czech. They spoke German, and they especially spoke German in their professional lives, at universities. It was really the country folk and the working classes who spoke Czech. So I find this Czech nationalism very interesting, and the fact that Smetna and Dvorak turned to the polka, as you say, and the dumki in their music to build a Czech nationalism is very important. 
We're going to move on to Johann Strauss Jr. now, and another very famous composer of dance music and also a conductor of dance music. He and his whole tribe, in fact, he, two of his brothers, I think his father and an uncle as well. But Johann Strauss Jr., the most successful of them, and you played a polka. How is this polka different from Dvorak's polka? This is a type of polka, it's a polka schnee. So it's basically the same as a gallop, a galop. There are not many steps, you just basically canter around the room as far as the dresses and corsets allow. The Eliana Magyar, the, this particular polka that we're playing, was written to celebrate making a dual monarchy out of what had been the empire. So raising the Hungarian element, I suppose, to an equally important position in government. It was first performed in Pest to celebrate this particular treaty and incorporates the type of Eastern Hungarian inflection we were talking about in Dvorak in the melodic lines, but it also has the coloration of snare drum, bass drum, cymbals to give that zing. It's very much um, violinists showing off, as in any Hungarian dance band, you have your characters, you have the bass lines who are, who are driving it from, from the bottom, so the, those are the ums, as in the umpas. You then have the offbeats, who are always second violins, violas and horns, um, just firing off this incredibly energetic kind of thing that's going in the background, and you have the violins going absolutely mental. And there's a quote from the Radetzky march as well at the end, so just to tie everything of the new face of the empire together, and it's just basically full of paprika and attitude. Just to finish up, you can't learn this style overnight, so you've got to impart it to our players, your band, in a limited time. What are the essentials that you want them to get in order to play a good Strauss polka? For me, the great waltzes are as intricate and multi-layered as any Schubert symphony, for example. I think the number one message I wanted to get across is this is not gig music, it's not circus music. Of course it's fun. It's incredibly fun, it's meant to be, but there are huge layers of humanity even in something as, I suppose, throwaway as this. And I really wanted them to, first of all, understand that that is the case, to identify what those characters are and how the instrumentation and scoring actually um, allow us to bring that to life. And then, of course, have a rip-roaring time as well. Howard Penny, thanks so much for talking to us on NM Radio. A pleasure, thank you.